All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you I have met, my name is Dan. The privilege of serving as uh, one of the pastors here for Parks Forest Glen location. Really grateful to be with you guys this morning as we continue through our series through the New Testament letter of Romans. So if you have a Bible with you, why don't you open with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It's on page 944 if you grabbed one of those blue Bibles from the seat in front of you. Romans chapter 8. We will be in the first 11 verses uh, this morning. Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 11. Uh, while you're turning there, uh, on December 26th, 1944, a Japanese intelligence officer named Hiro Onoda was sent to a Philipp- an island in the Philippines right towards the end of World War II. Of course, he didn't know the end was uh, coming, but he sent right, in, uh, right towards the end of the war. And his mission was to disrupt as much as he could, as much as possible, all of the allied activities that were taking place on this island. And this is what he gave his, his whole life to. This is what he, he focused all of his attention and energy uh, was squarely placed on what his commanding officer had asked of him. Uh, and his officer had even promised, you know, you're not done until I stand in front of you uh, and tell you, uh, until I stand in front of you and relieve you of your duty. Right? This, this is what Enodo was charged with. Well, the war ended in 1945. Leaflets were sent by the Japanese government to many islands where they had some of their uh, soldiers to kind of draw them out and let them know that the war had ended. Enodo, though, and his, man found, his men, they found these leaflets and just assumed, like, oh, this is obviously propaganda. Right? We're not going to believe this. And so they uh, kept on fighting. They'd have uh, shootouts regularly with local police forces and other residents on the island. They kept going. And the Japanese uh, government decided to take another, uh, another uh, stance and they dropped more leaflets specifically in this, on this island uh, directed towards Onoda and some of his, uh, his men. They had uh, clippings from newspapers all around the world declaring that the, the war is over. Stop fighting. The war is over. They, they sent letters to him from his family members pleading with him to come back home. They, they sent uh, pictures of his family members and they, they saw all of this material and he thought, wow, th- this is propaganda. The war is not over. Of course, the Japanese army was never going to surrender. Of course, it's not, it's not over. So they kept on fighting. Remember, the promise from his commanding officer was that I will come and relieve you of your duty. Finally, an exacerbated Japanese government trying to uh, convince him that the war was over uh, went to work finding to locate his commanding officer who had since become a bookshop owner. They flew him to this island and officially he stood before Hiro Onoda and relieved him of his duty upon which he actually surrendered. The year was 1974 and he was not even the last Japanese soldier to surrender. He'd been fighting a war that was over for almost 30 years. Why am I telling you this? Because I think in some ways, in a lot of ways actually, this story kind of parallels one of the uh, hard realities of the Christian life. Uh, This idea that uh, sin in our lives, sin as, as followers of Jesus, lingers. 
Right, that there is an ongoing battle with sin in our lives long after the war is over, if you know what I mean. We feel the effect uh, of sin. We feel it continue to pull at us. We've been following along the last couple of weeks as we've been looking through Paul's letter in chapter 6 and chapter 7. We know that Paul has been, uh, he's kind of forcing us to ask this question, talking about a, uh, a question in the Christian life. Here's the question in a nutshell. Uh, as a follower of Jesus... What do you do about ongoing sin in your life? How do you deal with it? What do you do about that? Is it okay? Should you just kind of brush it under the rug and move along? What, what do you do about ongoing sin in your life? And I'll say, this, this is not a theoretical question for any of us. It's not a theoretical question. This is very personal. This is a real question that many of us have come to often. I mean, why, why is it that I can honestly say, honestly say, there's something in my life I never want to do again, never want to do that again, something I can passionately reject and speak out against, almost uh, scream that I want to be done with, and yet at the same time, we can go back and do that very same thing. And if it's not the same thing, something else has popped up to take its place. What do we do with an ongoing battle of sin in our lives? That's the question. I've been talking about this the last several weeks here. See, in chapter 8, Paul finally gives us an answer. It's incredible. In fact, throughout history, many have seen Romans chapter 8. They've called Romans chapter 8 the greatest chapter in the Bible. Not because it's more important than any other chapter, not because it's more authoritative in our lives, but uh, they call it the greatest chapter in the Bible because in this, Paul masterfully, powerfully articulates the astounding truth that God does not just grant us freedom from sin. He does not just grant us freedom from sin. He also by the power of the Holy Spirit, empowers us to live and thrive in freedom from sin. In fact, if there's anything we're supposed to walk away thinking about uh, today, it's this. One, one idea I want you to walk away thinking about, uh, it's this, that if you are uh, a, a Christian, the Holy Spirit helps you live in freedom. The Holy Spirit helps us live in freedom. God the Holy Spirit does not just dwell within you, but he empowers you to live the way that God has created you to live, to live in freedom from sin, to live in a joyful obedience to our God so that we would honor Jesus with all that we think, say, and do. If you're not there yet, open with me to Romans chapter 8. I'll read the text and pray, and then we'll get started. And I'll say just from the beginning, we are just going to scratch the surface here today. We're going to be spending the next several weeks uh, diving into Romans chapter 8. In fact, next week you're going to hear from Joel Sedeckes, who's going to talk more about the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so this is going to be a setup for, for him next week. No pressure, brother. <laughs> Romans chapter 8. Let me read the text. Uh, I'll pray, and then we'll get started says this, verse 1, listen to these words, there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live in the, according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the time that we get to use today and mindful that as we open your word, this is the way that you genuinely speak to us. You reveal yourself, your desires for us in your word. So just, I'm, I, I'm mindful that my job is not to be clever as I open your word. My job is to be faithful, to proclaim what you have already said. And I pray that as your people, we, we would rejoice in the truth of your word today. That we would leave here encouraged by what the gift of the Holy Spirit means for us. God, I'm just so grateful that, that you, you don't call us just to uh, live a life of obedience and hope that we can somehow figure it out. But you empower us by the Holy Spirit to honor you. And we thank you for that, Lord. We ask that you would not let one of us leave here untransformed by you. God, long after we leave this place, speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Continue to preach to us that we would know what it means to set our minds on the Spirit, to live in the freedom that the Spirit brings. So we thank you for this time. We trust you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look, like I already said, we, we are just going to scratch the surface today. But as we look at Romans 8 over the next four weeks, we, we're going to be confronted with, with the lavish inheritance that we have as followers of Jesus. In fact, that's why we've called this uh, mini-series in Romans 8, The Lavish Inheritance, because we're just going to be uh, talking about uh, the blessing it is that God has given us in the Spirit, what it means for us as Christians to have hope, even in the midst of uh, the, the most intense kinds of suffering, that we can have a great confidence in who our God is. And so we're just going to be uh, digging into this over the next four weeks. Now, I touched on this already, but before we look at the answer that Paul gives uh, to the question we've been asking, I want to revisit what he's been talking about a little bit, just to make sure we're on the same page. It'll help us trace Paul's thought through chapter 8. Remember, in chapter 6, Paul showed us that the message of the gospel absolutely eradicates any room for complacency in our lives over 
sin. Basically, uh, the, the idea is this. As a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, you cannot, we cannot just write off sin in our lives. Right? It's, it's not just a no big deal kind of thing, brush it under the rug, God doesn't care that much uh, kind of thing. No. In Romans 6, we, we saw and we'll be reminded again today that God takes our sin seriously. And just so we're on the same page, when I use that word sin, here's what I'm talking about. Sin, at, at a basic level, uh, is our failure to live the way God has created us to live. It's a failure to live the way God has created us to live. It's when we do anything that God tells us not to do, or we don't do the things that God tells us to do. That's what sin is. The bottom line from Romans chapter 6 is that complacency, just, you know, like, ah, not, not really a big deal. That whole mindset is not an option for a follower of Christ. Now you move into chapter 7, specifically the second half of chapter 7. Andrew Graff was here last week, and he did a great job talking about the tension that Paul brings up in chapter 7 when he describes the, the Christian life. He says this in chapter 7, verse 22. You can see it on the screen behind me. Paul says, for I, for I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members or my body another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. It's like he's talking about this battle going on inside of us. Think of uh, Hiro Onoda, and the, the, the war is long over, long over, but he continues to do battle. And on the one hand, we know what God wants us to do. We know what God wants us to do. On the other hand, there's this desire pulling at us uh, to do something else, particularly what we want to do. That's an undeniable reality of the Christian life. Paul says it well, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. When I, want to do right, when I want to do what God is calling me to do, I find it a law. This happens every time. Evil lies close at hand. Some of us know that really well, right? Those of us who are married know this really well. Husbands, how often is it when you're trying to do something for your wife, to serve your wife in a particular way, hiding just behind you doing the dishes is a whole subset of uh, expectations that you have in place. And you might not even realize it until they don't play out the way you thought it would. Find it a law that when we want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And you can tell Paul finally gets to a breaking point. In verse 24, he asks this question, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the struggle that he's talking about, that question. Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? And we've got to hear that for a minute because this is really strong language for Paul to use. I mean, it's, it, it's a desperation in a struggle with sin. But you, you don't say something like that without recognizing what's at stake. Before we move on, I think it's worth pausing here just, just for a moment. Friends, do you know that this is the, the question? Who will rescue me from this body of death? This, this is the question we should regularly be coming back to as followers of Christ. Because asking this question reveals how insidious we actually see the sin in our lives. In fact, it's safe to say that if you are a Christian and are not asking this question, who will rescue, who will deliver me? It's safe to say that you might be 
more complacent about sin than you're aware of. Let me ask you this. When was the last time, as a follower of Jesus, you were overwhelmed by your own struggle with sin? It's the last time you asked the question, how, how, can, how can I do that? How could I have done that? I was pretty open with you a few weeks ago talking about my ongoing struggle with frustration and anger. And I asked the question, God, God, how is this still an issue for me? It's the last time you got kind of been slapped in the face by your own sin. And I, and I bring that up because I think before we go any farther, we, we need to feel the tension that Paul is talking about. That he's been building up the last two chapters. But friends, do you see that it is only when we feel the true weight, the gravity of this struggle with sin, it's only when we actually feel it that we will truly love the relief offered to us in the gospel. Because while this, there is this ongoing struggle that accompanies the Christian life, look with me what Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. If you are a Christian, Paul is saying that there is no condemnation from God over your sin in your life anymore on you. And it's not because God just gives you a pass. It's not because he chooses to look the other way. Boys will be boys, girls will be girls, that kind of thing. He doesn't decide that for some reason your sin issue just doesn't matter anymore. That's not as big a deal as somebody else's. Keep reading, verse 3. Paul says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is an incredible thing for Paul to, to say, that far from God just wanting to blindly punish people who don't obey him, God makes great provision for humanity to have relationship with him. Because there's not just some set of rules and regulations that we're somehow supposed to live by or else. No, far from it. You see, the beauty of the gospel is, is that while we have earned condemnation, we have rightly earned condemnation and punishment for our failure to live the way God has created us to live. The gospel shows us that God did not demand that condemnation be satisfied on us. And the reason there is no condemnation for a follower of Jesus is not because God doesn't care, but because he redirects the, the, the condemnation that we have earned. Rightly, he redirects it on Jesus. He says he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, so he condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus was condemned so that we wouldn't have to be. Friends, this is the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. This is, uh, this is the core, the message of the gospel, that Jesus was condemned in our place for our sin. 
See, in his death on a cross, Jesus takes on the punishment, the condemnation that we have earned for our failure to live the way that God has created us to. You can write this phrase down. This is one of those uh, heavy theology phrases. Theologians call this penal substitutionary atonement. It's the idea that Jesus takes on our penalty. He takes our penalty that, that we had earned. He, he takes it in our place in order to atone for our sin before God the Father. Can I bring that home a little bit for us? Christian, do you know that in no way do you need to wait for the other shoe to drop with God? That when you became a Christian, there was a fundamental uh, shift, transformation that takes place in your life. Your standing for, before God is forever changed. You think back to the story I started with, with Hiro Onoda. Uh, the moment, at the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection, the war is over. It's over. Just so we're clear, Paul says in verse 1 that this is for those who are in Christ. That means those who believe in Jesus, who are Christians, they believe in his death and resurrection from the dead, who pledge their allegiance to him and him alone, not for just a subset of people, but this is available to anybody who would put their faith in Jesus. Here's what we've got to see. Here's what we've got to see. This is the foundation of the gospel message that Jesus has done for us what we could not do ourselves. Now, if you've been around here for a while, you know that we talk about this every week. We talk about this every week in some way. But you see, this is where Paul introduces a newer idea for us, something we haven't talked very much about in our series in Romans. See, in the gospel, it's not just that God establishes a relationship with us, by sending his son. He does that. He establishes a relationship with us by sending his son, but he also sustains a relationship with us by sending us his spirit. He establishes a relationship by sending his son. He, he sustains a relationship by sending his spirit. We'll be spending more time again talking about this next week. Uh, as Paul continues to highlight more roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're going to boil this down into one uh, for our section today. Look with me at verse 4. We're going to be looking at one of the great roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. Verse 4. Remember, though, that in verse 3, Paul's just talked about what Jesus has done on our behalf, condemned in our place. Verse 4, he tells us why. He says this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according, no, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, the way God has called us to live, the, uh, what Paul calls the righteous requirement of the law, it's fulfilled, it's met, it's satisfied, not in our own doing, but by walking or living according to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live in freedom. It helps us live the way God has created us to live. Hang, in, hang out there for a second, though. Because I think we can easily miss just, just how liberating that idea really is. 
It's because of the Holy Spirit. It means we don't need to try and fig- just blindly figure out what does God expect of me? How can I, uh, like a magic eight ball, what do I need to do next to make sure that he's still happy with me or make sure that he is pleased with me? No. You see, God has not left us alone to figure these things out. He has, by his Spirit, his Holy Spirit, given us a great gift, empowering us to honor God in all that we think, say, and do. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. He allows us to live the way, helps us live the way we've been created to live in freedom from sin, honoring God. Now, let me be clear for a second here because, you know, just like we've talked about the last couple weeks, having the Holy Spirit in your life does not therefore mean you will never sin again. If it did mean that, a lot of us would be in trouble because we'd be asking a different set of questions. Right? Am I, do I actually have the Spirit? No. See, Paul's not just saying we, we have the Spirit who helps us. He says we also need to live according to the Spirit. We need to set our minds on the Spirit. So one of the interesting things that you, you see when you look through all of Christian history is you look back and uh, you see examples of of people who, who are believers, and you'll, you'll see the good things that they've done, but you also see like the, the dark side of, of their lives, things, these glaring blind spots that they somehow missed, and we, we wonder, like, how is, this, how is this person okay with that? Right? A great example, Jonathan Edwards, maybe one of the uh, most important and uh, greatest theological minds ever born on American soil in the 18th century. Jonathan Edwards, a pastor and missionary, uh, had... Owned slaves. You look back at something like that, and there's many other examples we could point to, and you wonder, how is this guy okay with that? How is he okay with that? There's these glaring blind spots that all of us have. The ironic thing is, a hundred years from now, people are going to look back at Christianity today and wonder, how were they okay with those things? Don't fully know what all those issues are. There's a few of them. People are going to wonder, how are we okay with those things? Because we have blind spots. We, we all have glaring blind spots. And so having the Holy Spirit does not therefore mean you will never sin again. But by God's grace, he will, he will begin to work out some of those blind spots. It keeps us humble looking back at Christians through history. makes us uh, realize that nobody has ever been perfect in their profession of faith. There's blind spots. But here's the thing. It's not that the Holy Spirit just helps us. Paul's point is that we are called to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And it takes intentionality. It takes intentionality to set our minds on the Spirit. It's not something that just will happen. Because again, there is this ongoing battle with sin in our lives. It's ongoing battle. Paul gives it a... Uh, some language, he, he, he calls it the flesh. The flesh kind of represents this ongoing battle. Look with me at verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 5. He says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the, to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Paul's talking about two different mindsets. The flesh, that ongoing battle with sin, and the spirit. 
Paul says that you will either set your mind on the flesh or you will set your mind on the spirit. And it matters. It has an effect on us. One of the things you know, I've, I've often thought about is the, the fact that you know, in my own life, and I think for all of us, we, we are really far more impressionable than we give ourselves credit for. We are people who are heaven, heavily influenced by the things around us. We're shaped and formed constantly by the things we uh, read, see, and hear. Frankly, I mean, this, this is the reason why there's so much money in big data companies, because they know that they can shape our thinking by forcing certain ads to us regularly. We, we, we will be subtly uh, but surely formed by what we're taking in. The shows we watch, the books we read, where we get our news will all shape our thinking and how we process the world around us. In other words, we, live in, we are formative beings. Right? I say this often here. Sunday morning is not the only time you will hear a sermon this week. There are many ideas being preached at us constantly about what the good life is and what you actually want. You see what I'm saying? We are, we are formative people. Paul says this is how it works with the flesh and the spirit. What we are exposed to matters. And it's like he's describing a cycle. You know, the the person who lives according to the flesh, he says in verse 5, will set their mind on the flesh. So in turn, that person continues to live according to the flesh. And he says this cycle with the flesh, it ends in death. It ends in destruction. Even if it's satisfying or feels good in the moment, it ends in death. But here's the punchline for us. See, he's not trying to just sit on uh, the, the, the mindset of the flesh. The punchline Paul is trying to make is in verse 9. Look at me there. He says, you, however, talking to these believers in Rome, these Christians in Rome, he says, you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. This is Paul says, you are in the Spirit, so set your mind on the Spirit. Be formed by the Spirit, because that same cycle is at play right here. And setting your mind on the Spirit, you will then live by the Spirit. And he says that the fruit of that is uh, life and peace. And again, Paul is not just talking about living a good life. To, to live by the Spirit is to live the way that God has created us to live. It's to experience satisfaction and joy and a peace in, in a way that surpasses anything else we might hope to find. To live in the Spirit is to live life to the full, to live your best life. It's to live in freedom from sin and, and, and in the flesh. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live the way that we have been created to live. That's where the good life is. So the question we need to be asking, and again, we're, we're going to talk more and more about what the Holy Spirit does in the next two weeks, but the question we need to be asking today is how do I set my mind on the Spirit so that I live by the Spirit? How do I set my mind on the Spirit so that I will continue to live by the Spirit? How are we supposed to do this? Let me give you a couple ways. And, and these, these will come to, as no surprise. Some of these will come as no surprise. Here's the first one. I want to be really clear about this. That to live in the Spirit to set your mind on the Spirit, to live the way that you've been created to live, is only possible by first becoming a Christian. By trusting in Jesus' death and his resurrection from the dead is the foundation of your relationship with 
God, that without faith in Christ, Paul says, you, you are stuck in the cycle of the flesh. Look at verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not seek to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those in the flesh cannot please God. you're here today and you know that you're not a Christian, you know you've just been, maybe you come on an arm of a friend or uh, just with a spouse, whatever it might be, I want you to hear, I'm not trying to promote hate speech, I'm not trying to unnecessarily, uh, you know, say hurtful things to you, but I'm, I'm saying this is, this is what Paul wants us to know, this is what the scriptures reveal to us, that apart from Christ, we expose ourselves to the coming condemnation and punishment for our failure to live the way that God has called us to live. There's a condemnation that will fall on you because of your sin. But I tell you that because there is good news. That to become a Christian, what you need to do is put your faith in Jesus. Pledge your allegiance to him and him alone. And God offers you new and a transformed life, promising to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you want to have a conversation about this, come and talk with me after. Come and talk with one of the elders here at Park. We would love to talk with you more about what it means to become a follower of Jesus so that you might uh, be able to set your mind on the Spirit to live the way that God has created you to live. Here's the second thing. Second thing we need to do to set our minds on the Spirit. You see, we do this as we are regularly engaged in reading God's Word and in prayer. Second Peter 1.21 tells us that the, the Bible is not just a couple people's thoughts about what and who God is, written down for us. No, it, it is the product of the Holy Spirit. That the words we, are, we read in the scriptures were written by the help of the Holy Spirit. And this is the way the Spirit still leads us today. As we regularly come before the word of God and desire to conform our lives with what scripture says. Not, not twist what scripture says to conform how we want to live. Listen, I, I, I get it. I get the, the tension of like, okay, there's another pastor telling people to read and read their Bibles and pray. Very original. I know. I know. I get it. And there, there's this whole thing of like, come on. It, it, I'm busy. Stuff, stuff creeps into uh, my, my time in the Word. I'm trying, but like, how do, how do I do this well? A couple months ago, you remember that my wife was, uh, she was in Turkey for about a year. Uh, or what, what felt like a year. Uh, Eleven days. And before she left, I thought, this is, I kind of get a vacation. She's gone, me and the kids, it's going to be kind of nice. I'll put them to bed early, uh, then I can go to bed early, and then I can wake up early, and like, I'll, I'll have my quiet time in the morning with no distraction. Like, yeah, I'm an introvert, so I was like really coveting this time. Uh, and day one, I realized how uh, dumb that was. <laughs> This is a very bad idea, a very wrong thought that I had. And, you know, I would sit there and try and open my Bible and get hit in the face with a sword. Uh, or my, my, my daughter would get hit and would throw a shield at me. Like this, this kind of thing would happen because they'd wake up as soon as the coffee started. 
You see, I, I was in this place where I'm like, I, I, I really need this time to be, like I need it really set aside. I need God to speak to me and uh, kind of just, like I need to walk away with some great insight from my time in the Word or uh, I need to walk away feeling like really uh, close with God after my time in prayer. Otherwise, I've wasted that time. How many of you have been there? You feel like our, our, your time in the Word is really, it's all about how, what, what you end up walking away with. You realize this is a myth. It's a myth that it's only worth it if we walk away with some great insight. Because what happens is we regularly engage in God's, open it up, even if we get, you know, a couple verses in, get five minutes in, spend just, just a few moments in prayer. What we're doing in that time is we're actually setting our mind on the Spirit. Again, we, we are formative beings. What we take in, what we expose ourselves to matters. And you may not feel it after five minutes, but I guarantee after five years, you begin to see the way that God has shaped and formed what you love, what you care about through that time in the Word because we're beginning to be formed by what we're taking in. The second way we set our minds on the Spirit is when we intentionally engage in prayer and in the Word. Here's one more example. One more example of setting your mind on the Spirit, and it's a bit more on the practical side, and it's going to be something I want to invite you to join in on. The last couple weeks, we've been announcing this Ash Wednesday service coming up this Wednesday, right, 6.30 a.m., 7 p.m., and for those of you who don't know what Ash Wednesday is, or maybe you grew up going to an Ash Wednesday service but never kind of had it explained, um, Ash Wednesday is the official start of a roughly seven-week period leading up to Easter called Lent. There's nothing special about Wednesday. It just happens to start on that, that particular day. But the whole purpose of Lent, these, these 40 days, the whole purpose is, is not for us to show just kind of uh, you know, put on a religious show for people around us. It's, it's not just so that on Ash Wednesday you can walk around with ashes on your head and let people know you know what's up, right? But at its very core, Lent has always been formative. This is why for over 1,500 years, Christians have used this time for fasting, Intentionally giving up something of value and replacing that activity or, or that thing with time in the Word, time with, uh, with, with prayer. I mean, essentially, the purpose of Lent is to intentionally create space for you to set your mind on the Spirit, to, to, to uh, engage in a formative season. As your pastor, I'm going to make a challenge for our church this year, something we didn't really do last year or in previous years. I'm going to challenge all of us who call Park Home, who are regularly here, to join us in a church-wide fast together. I'll be very clear, you don't get extra points from this, like I'm not going to pray for you extra hard or something if I find out that you're fasting, and you're not going to get an email from me challenging you on why you're not fasting if you don't. But they're, they're, I'm inviting you to join in on this formative season for us. The process of fasting is taking something that we value and intentionally giving it up so that we can create space for something else. A lot of people view fasting with food. Right? I'll, I'll encourage you though, if you're going to do this, Fasting is not a diet. Right? This is not whole 40 with Jesus, right? 
But what we're doing is we're, we're, we're taking something we value. We say, I'm, I'm going to give this up for this season to create space so that I can set my mind on the Spirit. It's, it's formative. Right? It's, it's a formative practice for us. And it might not be food. Maybe it could be just, just one meal a day that you are setting aside. Or maybe it has nothing to do with food. Maybe it's a social media fast or a digital entertainment fast. There's a bunch of different ways uh, that you can do this. In fact, on Ash Wednesday, we're going to be handing out a kit for families uh, to take home so that you can do this together with some ideas on how you can fast together and talk about why you're doing what we are doing so that we can engage in this formative season and together, even with our kids. The point is, whatever you're giving up, it's supposed to be like a trigger. Right? If it's food, you use that physical hunger that will come. You use that as a prompt to say, am I as spiritually hungry as I am physically hungry right now? I really believe that man does not live by bread alone. Let that drive you to more time in word, in the prayer, to set your mind on the Spirit. So I'm going to invite you to join us on this Wednesday for the kickoff of Lent, either at 6.30 in the morning or 7 p.m. for one of our services as we take an intentional step together into this formative season as we set our minds on the Spirit together to live by the Spirit. It's the third way. Friends, the final piece I want to just share with you is that Uh, In in pointing us to the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul is giving a solution to the problem. He's beginning to give a solution to the problem he's been raising all through chapter 7. And what do we do with the lingering sin in our lives? And we got to see that the powerful encouragement from this text is that if you are a Christian, God helps you, God empowers you to live in obedience to him. He wants us to honor him, and so he helps us by the Holy Spirit. Sin no longer has authority in your life. You do not have to run back to it. As a Christian, you do not have to give yourself over to it again. Those of you who are here today, and you, as soon as we talk about ongoing sin, you think about something very specific in your life. I want you to hear this, too. That as a Christian, you have been filled and sealed with God's Holy Spirit who will work powerfully in your life. Paul could hardly say it any better than he did in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Christian, you can be confident that God is and will continue to be powerfully at work in your life. Romans chapter 8 is a profound chapter in the Bible. The great encouragement we get is that as followers of Jesus, God has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Empower us to live the way we've been created to live, to honor God in all that we think, say, and do, to live in freedom from sin, knowing that the war is over. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the kindness that you have shown us in Christ, that we can stand here as a people who are able to be formed 
by your spirit. So I pray that long after we leave this place, preach to us by your spirit. Show us more areas where we need to set our minds on the spirit, that we would live by the spirit, that we would honor you in all that we think, say, and do. God, thank you that you have not left us alone to figure this out for ourselves. But you take joy when we honor you and you help us to honor you. Would we be a people who celebrate your work in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.